help me make Tommy Tenney welcome back to New Hope. Love you, brother. I love this man. Uh, he embarrasses me talking about Leonard Ravenhill and me in the same breath. That uh, He was one of my heroes. I was 16 years old when I picked up a book out of my dad's uh, office. My dad is a pastor, a preacher. He's still uh, 82. He came back last week from preaching in, in, uh, in Chile in South America. And I picked up the book just because it had an interesting cover. And it looked like some old, crazy, white-bearded prophet standing out in the desert. But it was by Leonard Ravenhill. And the first paragraph of that book so impacted me that now, uh, 50-something years later, I can still quote it, that the handmaiden of the church, the unwooed handmaiden of the church is the prayer meeting. And because she is not dripping with the pearls of intellectualism or attired with the tiara of philosophy, she is often unloved. And it's, it impacted me at that point, and I realized the power of words. Do you know that when, when God wanted to make things, he didn't touch things. He spoke things. Words are powerful. With his words, he framed his world that we live in, and now with our words, we can frame our world. You can speak a good future into your life. Amen? I'm glad to be back in Augusta, Georgia. Pastor Rich was true. Uh, thank you. A few of you. What Pastor Rich said is true. I spend about uh, 60 and some years up to 70% of my time is outside of the U.S. So it's, it's, it's kind of fun to come do missions in Augusta, Georgia. A uh, week before last, I was in the Ukraine, uh, in Kiev, and Dnepropetrovsk. I'm going to give you a test to see if you can pronounce that. Let me say it one more time. Dnepropetrovsk. Took me five years to get it down. So uh, that is about 70 miles from the front lines where Russia and uh, I'm sorry, 70 kilometers, which is like 50 miles from the front lines where Russia and and the Ukraine are fighting, but we had 5,000 people in the church that Sunday. Amazing things that God's doing. I'll, let me give you one little victory report, okay? The, I have spiritual sons all over the world, and that's basically what I do. I go help them. I, I don't go preach crusades. I, I haven't ever, I've really never done that. I go to help them. And one of my spiritual sons... He just has vision, and he listens to God. He listens to wise counsel. And when I first started visiting his church, when I first met him, he was so raw. Uh, first of all, his, he and his wife had been mafia drug dealers. Does that, don't that sound like the kind of people God would turn into a pastor? He did it with the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you call him the mafia, but 
he was killing people. Uh, these, these young people, his wife had been hooked on heroin for 14 years. He was in prison, and he just, he, his grandmother was a part of the, the Orthodox Church, and so he said, I'm, I'm tired of this, and he went out in the prison courtyard and fell on his knees and just said, God, if you are really there, I want to meet you. And guess what happened? He met him, changed his life, turned his life around. And when I first started preaching for him, he'd gathered up about 400 people. And that was about 10 years ago. Now in the Ukraine, he has started 600 churches. That's amazing, isn't it? His church in Dnepropetrovsk grew to about 5,000 people. I challenged him. I said, if you're going to reach the nation, you need to move to Kiev. He moved to Kiev, and in one year, I preached the one-year anniversary of his church plant in Kiev. It was at 5,000 people. And it went from 5,000 to now, and three years later, he has to rent every Sunday the largest arena in the nation. It seats 14,000 people, and he rents that for his Sunday services. Now, here's the best part. He started a Bible school, and he said, I want you to come teach in the Bible school. I said, oh, I can't move to the Ukraine. He said, no, but neither can the Ukrainian people spend three years out of their life. We're just, our, our culture and our society, we can't afford that. So I'm going to do the Bible school where once a year they come for 30 days. So I said, well, I've never heard of that, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. Uh, the first time we had about 2,000 people, and I thought, man, this is amazing. 2,000 people, 30 days, 9 a.m. till 4 p.m. Nothing at night. They get to rest. And, they, and it's free for them to come, but they have to provide their own food and their own housing. Well, the last two Bible school sessions for the last two years, would you like to guess how many people are registered? 15,000. 15,000 people come for 30 days. Did you hear that? We, if we have 15,000 for one day, we're excited. Or for three days, that's an amazing conference. But for 30 days... And attendance is strictly monitored. You have to have a little card, kind of like you use at hotels, that you have to slide it through a thing before they let you in. And if you miss more than three days, your card don't work. And you have to go be interviewed, and they find out why you missed. And if it wasn't a good excuse, you're kicked out. So they say because we have over 5,000 people on the waiting list. And the only reason it's not larger is because there's no larger auditorium to handle it. And this is what God is doing. And you don't hear about those kind of things. But it's happening in places all over. Ten days from now, I'll be in Ecuador. Just had a horrific earthquake. But the church is responding there. A church that has grown beyond. It's the size of the one in Ukraine now. Uh, I go from there to Lima, Peru. Uh, Pastor Rich was worried about me. I've got a little injured leg, and he said, I hope we're not overdoing it with two services. Pastor Rich, they don't have mercy on me in Peru. 
when I go preach there, they have, in order to accommodate the church, they have seven services over the weekend. Two on Saturday night, three on Sunday morning, and two more on Sunday night. By the time I get done with that, I just, I, I, I schedule a coma for the next day. <laughs> but uh, it's amazing things. And all of those things, that I, I, I told you, just so you'd understand, I am just as excited about being in Augusta, Georgia for the next four days as I am anywhere. <laughs> Amen. It's been a long time since I've been here, and it's been a long time since I've preached a four-day revival. So you, you, you said you'd help that preacher. What about me? Uh, I appreciate you blowing it up on Facebook and Twitter. In fact, uh, get your phone out and start right now. You have your Bibles? Or perhaps for many of you, your Bible is your iPhone. So get out your iPhone or your Android, or in my case, it's an iPad. Maybe you even have ancient Jewish scrolls. Just pull them out. I want to talk to you today from the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 5. And my, my topic today is pretty simple. I'm going to talk to you about breaking the spirit of intimidation. Say that with me. Breaking the spirit of intimidation. How many of you have ever been intimidated? Some of you are so intimidated, you didn't even raise your hand right there. Like... <laughs> intimidation is, is what, intimidation is our natural reaction to fearful circumstances. We, we, we get a little bit afraid and it, it holds us back, it keeps us back, it keeps us from, from actually progressing in life because and sometimes intimidation has no real factors involved in it. It's not, it's not something that is uh, real. It's not something that is uh, genuine, but it's in our mind. And we get intimidated by it. My, uh, my little grandson, I have a grandson. In fact, uh, I wish I could tell you that I injured my leg uh, climbing the Andes Mountains in Peru to take the gospel to some Indian tribe, and I fell off the side of the mountain. But unfortunately, that's, I have to tell the truth because I'm preaching, and that's not what happened. It happened at Disney. <laughs> Getting off the Buzz Lightyear ride <laughs> with my grandson. So my, my new theology is Buzz Lightyear is not going to heaven until he repents for what he did to me. But I was with my little grandson uh, over the summer, and I was, uh, we have a pool in our backyard, and uh, it's always been a part, we want the grandkids to be safe around the pool, so we teach them about water safety, and we teach them about uh, don't fall in, learn when you need to jump in, and so I'm teaching him to be intentional about everything he does, and then when he jumps in, and and, and make sure somebody's there. So I, I would tell him, I would say, come on, his name is Braxton. I'd say, come on, jump, jump to Papa, jump. And he would say, get closer. So I, I would take a step or two closer, and, and he would say, I would say, come on, now you can do it, just jump, don't be afraid. I, I'm going to catch you. And he'd say, get closer, Papa, you still, you're not close enough. 
And finally, I get closer. When my fingertips are touching his fingertips, his faith would increase. And he'd say, I, I, I trust you now. And he would, I don't know if you'd jump. It's more like leaning. <laughs> and I would, I would catch him. And I kept working with him and working with him. And my wife said, Tommy, you know, maybe he's too young. Maybe we need to wait till next year. And I said, I, I don't know. I'll just keep working with him. And by the end of the summer, he had such confidence in his grandfather that I was going to catch him that with me not knowing what he's going to do, he would back off and get a running start and not even tell me, and he would just come flying a, a, a leap into the pool, maybe not even where I'm standing. And in midair, he would say, Papa! I look like Shamu the whale trying to get to him. But the, what happened is his confidence, he actually had more confidence in my ability to catch him than I had. But he, he had such confidence that my papa is not going to drop me. That no matter where I jump from or to, he's, he's there to catch me. Sometimes God stands in the deep end of our destiny. And he says, come on, come on, come on, jump to me. Come on, I, I, I'm, I'm going to catch you. And we say, get closer. And then perhaps, you know... God says, you know what, if, 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 if your faith is not big enough, if your fear is too great, if the intimidation factor is too great, we'll wait till next year or next time. The only problem with next time when it comes to God, it's usually next generation. And we, you miss that moment. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss, I don't want fear and intimidation to keep me from experiencing all that God has for me and for my family. So when I start talking to you about Joshua and when I tell you that I discovered something about Joshua that honestly after 40 years of preaching, I, I thought I knew pretty much everything you needed to know about Joshua. He's He's the guy that took over after Moses, and wow, who, who would want to do that because Moses was the man. I mean, anybody that can stretch a stick across the sea and part it, he's the man. And he, he can hit a rock with that stick, and water comes out of it. And all I can say is, don't touch me with that stick. I don't know what would happen. In fact, since I've had to start using a cane to walk with, I, 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 I feel better because Moses had one. But I, I have tried with mud puddles, and I can't get the water to do anything. So Moses was the man. And then along comes Joshua. Uh, Moses, the first five books of the Bible, it's, that's his authorship. And he has incredible understanding about the beginnings of all things. And then Joshua comes along, and he's got a little tiny book, just a few chapters long. And you think, well... So Joshua is uh, uh, in the shadow of Moses. But the truth is, Joshua was able to do some things and accomplish some things that Moses was never able to do. Moses was never able to lead the people into the promised land. 
He led them up to the promised land. He got them close. But as try as hard as he could, and he tried, he could not lead them into the promised land. But when Joshua became the leader, that's what he was able to successfully do. So Joshua could do some things that Moses couldn't do. And I, I began to understand there, there's, there's a reason why God called him. There's evidently was a, a, a factor in his life that allowed him to do that. That Wouldn't you like to be able to lead your family or your business or your friends into new territory? Joshua did that. And the, the, the factor in his life was, in my opinion, Joshua is the least intimidated character in the entire Bible. I mean, he's the guy that should have that no fear t-shirt because he was not afraid of anything. And what points it out to me is that one particular verse in Joshua chapter 5, it's verse 13, It's it's a common story, the most the most famous story of Joshua is the story of the walls of Jericho. How many of you know about the walls of Jericho? I've been recently watching it on Veggie Tales. How many of you like Veggie Tales? For those of you who are biblically illiterate, Veggie Tales is the biblical stories as told by vegetables. Larry the Cucumber and Bob the tomato. And I was shocked at the theology of it because I was watching it with my grandchildren and Larry the cucumber is kind of bouncing along across the... the de- he, cucumbers have to bounce because they don't have legs. He's bouncing across and then the, uh, it's Josh, it's, uh, which one is the cucumber? I already forgot. Larry. Larry is the playing the character of, of Joshua, and they call him Josh. And as he's bouncing along, he literally bounces. He runs into the walls of Jericho, just bounces off of them, and then suddenly looks up. And I thought, well, that, that's cute. It's kind of a cute way to put it. But for some reason, the next day or so, I, I decided to reread it. Maybe VeggieTales inspired me to reread the book of Joshua. And I, I looked at it. And I discovered that what Veggie Tales show, showed us is not too much different than the, Bible, the biblical narrative, that I had never noticed it. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, it says, And Josh, it came to pass when Joshua drew near Jericho. Our one translation says, When he was by Jericho. So he's literally walking up to it. He's getting close to it. And I I don't know if he actually bounced off the wall. I kind of doubt that. But it says that he drew near Jericho and then he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And something clicked in my head because I remembered, as most of you will, that Joshua had been to Jericho before. Because when Moses led the people up to the promised land, he sent 12 spies into Jericho to check it out to see 
if this is the place where we want to stay. When I was a young child and I would travel with my mom and dad, they would do youth camps all over uh, the U.S. and we traveled by car. And that was the day long before internet and and being able to call even and make reservations at a nice hotel. And so you would just, as it started getting close to, to nighttime, you would just start stopping at hotels until you could find one that had a vacancy. I don't know, most of you are too young to even real, remember those days. But the other thing is, those hotels in those days, they could be a little dodgy. You never knew what you were going to get. So even when my dad found a hotel room, my mom would instruct us, stay in the car until your dad goes in and actually checks out the room. I don't know whether she wanted him to have a a, a magnifying glass and check for bed bugs or I'm I'm not sure, but he had to come out and say, I think it'll be fine because her instructions were, tell me if you think this is a place where I want to sleep. So what Moses was actually doing is saying to the spies, okay, you guys go to Jericho and check this place out and let us know if this is, does this, uh, is this meet the description of the promised land that God has, has held out in front of us? As Pastor Rich told, he was dangling that promised land. He was stand, it's like God was standing on the other side of Jordan saying, come on, come on, come on. This is it. This is, don't be afraid. Jump. But they sent 12 spies to check it out. And I, I don't think that was a bad idea. When they came back with a report about Jericho, here's what happened. Ten of those 12 spies uh, added a little postscript, a PS, to their report. The, they all agreed. All 12 of them agreed it was a fantastic place. That bountiful harvest and green pastures and they made up phrases that we use now. They said it flows with milk and honey. They were trying to use the power of words to describe how beautiful this place was after a 40 year jaunt across the wilderness. It was enticing. It was beautiful. It was everything that they had hoped for. But 10 of those spies, after all of this glowing report, paragraph after paragraph of how great it is, 10 of the 12 spies put this little few words at the bottom. I'll quote it exactly the way the Bible does. They said, but there be giants there. In other words, everything we told you is true, but there's giants there. What's interesting is Joshua and Caleb didn't add that little postscript. They added a different one. Their postscript was, we are able. It's interesting to me that they did not argue with what the others said. They didn't say, oh, they're just making it up. They, they need new glasses. I don't know what they saw. It's, a, it's like, regardless of what you saw, we are able. I like that kind of attitude. An attitude that just says, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, but it doesn't matter. What, What Joshua was, he was inspired more by the promise than he was intimidated by the problems. 
Oh, I, I, you need to Twitter that. That was good. That's so good I want to take notes on myself. He was more inspired by what God promised and said, this, this is where you need to go instead of being intimidated by the problems. So he was ready to go and his buddy Caleb was ready to go. But for whatever reason, the collective emotion of all of the nation of Israel was more impacted by their be giants. And it's like everything in them connected to that phrase so much that they forgot. They, they were more intimidated by the problems than they were inspired by the promises. And because of that, God kept saying, come on, jump to me, jump to me. And when they, when they said, we're afraid, then God said, okay, we'll wait till next time. But with God, next time was next generation. Because he said, why don't you, while we're waiting on something to happen inside of you where you're no longer intimidated, why don't you just take another lap around the wilderness? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to be, I don't I mean, 40 more years of walking in a circle and coming back to the same place they were. I, I don't know about you. I don't want to wait 40 years. I don't want to wait 40 months. I'm, I'm ready to receive the, the dangling promises of God as Pastor Rich so That was beautiful. I'm, I'm ready to reach for those things. But... What happened to the children of Israel is they caught the fear flu. Do you know that fear is contagious? Fear is, faith is contagious, but fear is also contagious. Uh, well, it seems like all I'm doing is telling stories about grandchildren today. Might as well. They're mine. That little grandson that I have. I like to pick him up from school. And I picked him up. This was a, a year back or so. Picked him up from school. He was in preschool. And I, I asked him, I said, how'd, how'd you date? What'd you do today? He said, just as serious as ever. He's throwing his backpack off and getting the seatbelt on. Uh, five years old. He said, I went bear hunting. I said, really? Yep. I mean, just kind of deadpan. Yep. Yep. I said to myself, I said, this would be an interesting story. I said, uh, his, his, his preschool was at the first United Methodist church. So I said, I did not know that there were bears on the playground at the United Methodist church. He said, yep, there were two, but I took care of them. Me and my friend, we took care of them so the rest of the kids can play. I said, really? Well, um, what, how did you take care of the bears? He said, I had a rope and a knife. And when I get big, you're getting me a gun. Right, Papa? <laughs> Smart kid. And I said, well, we'll see about that. But tell me some more about the bears. Oh, it was no big deal. I got the rope. I had the knife. We tied them up and the rest of the kids could play. In his little mind, you know, their, their imagination is so vivid, I, it was real to him. I dropped him off to his mom's, and I went to my dad's house. My dad lives about five blocks, and when I'm home, I try to go by and drink coffee with him. 
spend as much time. He's 82 now and still, still very lively. He's a powerful preacher. I was telling him the story about picking up Braxton. I said, you won't believe. I picked him up and he bear hunting and I, we were laughing about it. When unexpectedly, my daughter, Braxton's mother, dropped by my dad's house, his great-grandfather, to drop something off. And when Braxton and his sister, who's just a year older, walked in, my dad, my dad is so mischievous. My dad said, oh, Braxton, I am so glad you are here. I found out today that you're a bear hunter. And he said, yep, kind of stuck his little chest up, yep. And he, my dad said, do you know that room, they, 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 my mom and dad live in a, still a large house and down the hall, a dark hall, there's a room they don't use and it's, the lights are always off and it's just a bedroom that nobody uses and my dad said, do you know why we don't use that bedroom? There's a bear in there. <laughs> and, and he pointed at me. He said, your grandpa never helped me get rid of that bear. But now you've come along. I am so glad we have a bear hunter. And he said, would you please get rid of that bear down there for me so we can use that room? And Braxton said, yep, I'll do it. And he went where they keep some toys for them to play with. And the only thing he could find was an orange jump rope. And he grabbed one end of the jump rope and he started dragging it toward that room. And then he thought, and he, he used the other hand, he grabbed his sister. He said, you come with me. <laughs> Luke needs some moral support, right? And my dad is walking behind them and the, the the further you go in that hall, it just gets darker. And my dad is describing the bear as they walk. So you should see his teeth. They are huge. And his eyes are red. And his claws. And, and, and the closer they walk, the slower they got. Until when they got to the door of that room, I was watching. They, they couldn't get their feet to move anymore. And they were leaning, overbalanced, and right as that time, at that, when they had the most timidity, my dad, my mischievous dad behind them, my dad said, Rah! and the lights came on. <laughs> you should have seen those two kids. The first reaction was by his older sister, who's one year older. It's like she turned on the lights and the siren of an ambulance. And she climbed up my dad to try to get to the other side. The bear hunter was trying to be brave. As his sister pulls away from him, he's still thinking about it. And... It's, I saw it when it happened. He's like, and, and in his little mind, it's like, wait, she's older, she's bigger, she knows more, and she's scared. He knocked my dad down. And I told my dad, that's good enough. I'm not even helping you up. Scaring those little kids like that. 
What happened, though, is he was doing pretty good until her fear was contagious and jumped on him. And sometimes when we see other people that are fearful about what's going on in our world and fearful, maybe there's rumors that your plant's going to close. Maybe there's problems on your job. And other people begin to have fear about it. If you're not careful, that fear flu is contagious and it will jump on you. But what what happened? I have to tell you the rest about Braxton real quick. I would pick him up at school after that, and I would ask him, "Uh, did you see any bears today? And his standard answer, if you ask him about bear hunting today, this is what he will say, Papa, you know I don't do that anymore. (laughs) He has retired from bear hunting. We went into a sporting goods store with had had a... taxidermy stuffed bear there he went all the way around the other side of the store he said I'm not going by that bear I don't we're probably going to have to get deliverance or played over him or inner healing or something blame it on his great grandfather but that's that's what happens and and now he's sort of impacted with I'm no longer a bear hunter I want to tell you something the enemy of your destiny wants to put that kind of fear in your life so that you are, you're no, no longer a threat to him. So that you no longer are chasing after him and chasing him. We need to break that spirit of intimidation. Look at somebody next to you and just tell them, I refuse to be intimidated. Oh, some, I refuse to be, say it like you mean it. I refuse to be intimidated. Here's what really opened my eyes. Joshua had been to Jericho before because during that 40-year extra circumnavigation of the wilderness, after they almost went in the promised land and they circled, that, that took 40 years, and the Bible says that all of them who were fearful died in the wilderness. That's why I call it the fear flu. It was like an epidemic. It went through the the whole company of Israel, and they all died. Well, not quite. They all died except for two. Two from the original, however many there were, were still alive when they came back to the place where they had been before. Joshua and Caleb. Do you know why I think that they were still alive? Because they had been inoculated by faith. They had been vaccinated by faith. They had gotten a faith shot that made them immune to the fear flu. And what I'm trying to do today, I know some of you are afraid of shots and you don't like needles and I'm trying to get you over that right now. I'm trying to get you to roll up your sleeve and let me vaccinate you with the word of God so that when the fear flu comes through, you don't sneeze, you don't catch it and you can walk by faith. Hallelujah. That's what, that, that, that was the sort of illuminating thing when I realized Joshua had been to Jericho before. 
And when we talk about these walls, do you know that the Bible gives us some statistics about the walls? The Bible tells us that the walls of Jericho were so thick at the top that two chariots could ride side by side. Chariots are roughly the same wheel width as our modern automobiles. So picture a two-lane highway on top of the walls, and you'll get a mental picture of how thick and impenetrable they could be. And then the Bible also tells us that, that there were houses up there because Rahab's house was on the walls. So picture a two-lane highway and condos. And that is the obstacle that Joshua was facing. And the, the amazing thing that, that, that this passage tells me, the Bible says he drew near to it. He started walking up to it. It's one thing to encounter a problem that you did not expect. It's one thing to suddenly you get an email and and you're having to deal with a problem, or suddenly you get a diagnosis from the doctor and you weren't expecting it, but you have to deal with it. And so you, you stiffen up and you say, I'm going to get through this. It's one thing to deal with an issue that you unexpectedly had to face, but it takes a different kind of faith to know exactly how big the problem is, to know exactly how thick, how tall Perhaps the reason we know those statistics about the wall is because the spies measured it. Maybe even Joshua. He for sure knew how big the walls were and yet was not intimidated and walked up to them anyway. Go, cucumber. Bounce off that wall. That's, that's, that, that's the spirit that I, he knew. Say it with me. He knew. I'm talking to some of you. You know how big your obstacle is. You know exactly how tall, how wide, how thick. You're having to deal with it. And you're, you sometimes you say, well, I'm, I need to hold, stay back here. I'm, I'm, no. You cannot conquer what you do not confront. Oh, yeah. That's, that's good. Post that on Twitter. Tell people to come tonight. You cannot conquer what you do not confront. Some people never conquer anything because they never confront anything. They're too reluctant. They're going to stand back and say, well, I'll wait till it all gets fixed. No, you are the solution. You, Joshua, you're the solution. The solution can't be applied until you get there. When Joshua walked up to these walls, he had a fundamental difference when the... The other people, when they looked at the walls, they saw a problem. When Joshua looked at the walls, he saw the promise. And sometimes it's simply that you're looking at things and saying, that's a problem. When I'm telling you, God has said he would take care of you. So you need to look at those things and say, that's not my problem. That's my promise. And I'm marching toward my healing. I'm marching toward my reconciliation. I'm marching toward that legal solution. I'm marching toward what God has for me. It's not a problem. It's a promise. 
And it makes you feel differently when you view it that way. So Joshua said, I don't know about, can you imagine the the people with him? They have never seen the walls. They just heard the stories. And sometimes stories make things even bigger. And so they're, 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 they're marching along with Joshua and they say, uh, uh, Pastor Joshua, do, do you have a plan? Oh yeah, I've got a plan. What is your plan, God? Uh, yeah, but what's he going to do? I don't know. Did, did he tell? No, I don't have a clue. But should we check? No, he said go, so we're going. Oh, I'm, I'm preaching to you now. Now, you, 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 want to, you want to see the solution before you ever even arrive at the problem. God never gives you a solution until you're arrived at the problem. That's why it's called the walk of faith. And the enemy tries to, the enemy will talk to you about how big. The amazing thing, and, and I'm, I'm not going to finish with this today. I'm going to complete this tonight. But I want to leave you with this part. When he got to the walls, the Bible said he lifted up his eyes and looked. Like, am I preaching to anybody that ever had a problem that was so big that when you got to it, you had to look up because it was so looming over you? But here's what I think that Joshua understood and what I want you to understand. I think he looked up. Yeah, just as big as I remember. But when he looked up at the walls, he looked up a little further, higher than the walls. And he, he said he acknowledged the, the size of the problem. And then he looked higher than the walls at something that was bigger the face of his heavenly father. And he said, yep, you're still there. And you're just as big as I remember you being too. That's what I want you to understand. That your problems may be big, but your father is bigger. The Bible says that God sits high and he looks low. That heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. So regardless of how big your problem is, your God is bigger. Give God some praise for that. Hallelujah. Don't be intimidated by the size of your problem. Be inspired by the size of your promise. It's just how your faith sees it. When they totally understood that, Joshua was able to come. You know the rest of the story. And I'm going to, tonight, I'm going to tell you some things about Joshua that you didn't know because I didn't know them. I figured some things out that, that totally shocked me and has inspired me. I don't know. The next books I write might be about Joshua. I just got to figure out a better name, representation than a cucumber. But <laughs> hey, if it don't intimidate a cucumber, why should it intimidate you? Tell somebody next to you, I refuse to be intimidated. In fact, in fact, just tell them, you don't intimidate me. I saw husbands look toward their wives and turn the other way. That's a wise, wise man. I want to pray for you today. 
I want to pray to break that spirit of intimidation off of you so that when you leave this place this morning, that you walk out of here and you're saying, I'm a bear hunter again. I am not afraid. I I see my promises and I am more inspired by the promises than I am intimidated by the problems. Oh, yes, they're big. Let, let, Let me explain to you how faith, faith, I didn't get time to tell the early service this, Faith does not deny that there's a problem. I want to say that again. Faith does not deny that there's a problem. Some people have an idea that faith is, let's say say you have a headache. Now, I know all you guys are so spiritual, you never get headaches. I get headaches sometimes. And so you have a headache, your head's killing you. And so your idea of faith is you walk around and say, my head does not hurt. My, my head, no, I don't have a headache. Mm, no, no, my, my head, and your head is killing you. That's not faith. That's ignorance. You can't even recognize a problem when you say, how can you solve something if you deny it exists? Oh, I'm getting on your theology now. So you don't go around and say, I, I, I don't have a headache. Go ahead and say, I got a headache. It's a whopping dinger. I, it's the biggest headache ever. And suddenly, when you say that, and you say, but I have a God that's bigger than my headache. And you put God on the spot about dealing with it, and you put your faith in him. It's not denying. In fact, some people, they want to minimize their problem. I just have a little bitty headache. So I just, okay, so you need a little bitty God. No, I don't know about you. I don't need a little bitty God. I need a great big war chief coming to the rescue, the cavalry coming in, tanks fire. I need a big God, a vengeful God, a God who's going to help me. So that's why I say, oh, your, do your children, when they skin their knee, do they come to you and say, it's a little bitty. No, they come, it's the worst ever. Oh, my God. And then they can't remember which knee it was. (laughs) They don't minimize the problem, do they? They make it big because they want you to do something. Your heavenly father responds to that same thing. So don't minimize your problem. Don't go around and say, I just got a little problem. If it's a big problem, say, I got a big problem. But I got a bigger God. I don't want a little bitty God. I want a great big God who is bigger than my walls. That's why Joshua said, whatever my obstacles may be, my God is bigger than them. Therefore, I am not intimidated by the problem. I'm inspired by his promise. Hallelujah. Stand up and give God some praise right now. Praise God. Praise God. I'm not sure what you're facing. I'm not sure what the name... For Joshua, the name of the problem was Jericho. The name of the promise was also Jericho. I'm not sure what the name of your problem is. It could be cancer. It could be divorce. It could be 
uh, depression. It could uh, uh, the loss of a job or our children that, that, that are out of control. I don't know what the name of your problem is, but I know what the name of your Savior is. And the name of Jesus is greater. Hallelujah. I want to pray for you right now. Stretch your hands out right now. I want you to receive an impartation. Uh, Father, I pray right now for my friends and for those that are in here. I pray for an impartation of the faith of Joshua. Let, let, let something rise up within them. Let that something fearsome and something warlike and something that is refusing to be intimidating. I pray for that to rise up within them. That the promise before us is greater than the problems in our path. And that you, God, are going to be faithful to see us through. You are the author and the finisher. You never start something that you can't finish. And you started us and we're going to finish in faith and in victory. I speak that right now in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.